Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, my name is Duncan and I have the privilege of serving as pastor here and it's also my privilege to welcome you here to worship the Lord this morning. Especially if you're visiting with us, let me extend uh, an especially warm welcome to you and hopefully on your way in you were able to pick up one of these church diaries which contains a whole lot of information about things that are happening this week as well as our Bible reading today. Um, so do please get one of those if you didn't get one on the way in. I'm now going to invite Alison to come and read uh, today's passage, which is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You'll also find it printed in the, the diary that's produced this week. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of our Lord. Um, I can remember a few years ago now taking advantage of the, the doors open day. You know the thing I mean when, when, when buildings often open their doors to the public just to go in and have a nosy? Um, this was in Aberdeen a few years ago. I, I took the opportunity to visit uh, one of the larger churches in Aberdeen. And outside the front door was a man with a badge. It indicated he was an elder and he offered to give me a tour of the place. And the church was from a very different tradition to what I'm used to, so there was a lot to take in. And so I had a conversation with the man about the kind of services that they held in the church. And he said to me, oh, I, I really only come to church for the even song. I don't really care for a preaching service. And I was just thinking about that this week because the language that we often use in church services like this can actually communicate a similar kind of thing. Um, someone might lead a service saying, uh, you know, the band are going to come up now and they're going to lead us in a time of worship and after that, the pastor is going to come and deliver the sermon. And you get the distinct impression when we speak like that, that worship is singing, and whatever the other stuff is, it may be important, but it's something different from worship. I once saw a booklet that was given to new students, and it gave them a guide of the churches in Aberdeen just to help them to find their next spiritual home. And in the booklet, of course, it indicated for all of these churches their location, their size, their denomination. But there was, of course, a bullet point that said worship. And next to the word worship, there was one of three words. Traditional, contemporary, or blended. 
In other words, what kind of songs do they sing? That's what worship means. What kind of songs do they sing? Uh, officially, we're blended, by the way. Um, but I suppose building up all of those things, is that what worship is about? We come before God and we sing our songs and that pleases Him. Well, this part of the book of Ecclesiastes is concerned with precisely that issue. We've come now to chapter 5, and up to this point, we've, we've had quite a trek, really. The book has been aimed at helping us to find out what life is all about. The writer of the book likes to be known as the preacher. He's concluded that life is vanity. It's meaningless. And we've spent a lot of time every week emphasizing this. When he says that, he means life is like a vapor. It appears for a short time. You cannot grasp hold of it. And when it is gone, it vanishes without a trace. That's what your life is like. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. And the preacher has shown us already in this book that he's tried everything to change that. Everything that would, that would make the vapor last, that would leave a vapor legacy, but nothing could change it. And so his conclusion is that you know, the times and the seasons of life, they're all in God's hands. They're not in our control. And the way to get the most out of life is not to fight against that all the time, not to fight against the limits of life, but to embrace them and to receive the things God gives us as gifts from His hand to be enjoyed. And we saw last week in chapter 4, that the preacher looks at the world and all of its sadness and all of the injustice and oppression that goes on, and he sees that the root cause of all of that sadness is the envy of others that resides in the human heart. And it causes human beings to live the isolated life. You know, we may be sociable, we may have many friends, but the isolated life is the life that is not generous towards others. It is concerned for self and is concerned about outdoing other people rather than serving them. No, the preacher says the much better life is the life lived together. Two are better than one. And here, in these opening seven verses of chapter 5, he speaks about another important thing that people do together, God's people do together. That is, they come before God to worship Him. And you see straight away in verse 1 that the preacher is concerned less about the details of our worship and more about the frame of mind that someone has when they go to the house of God. You see verse 1, as he takes us to the heart of worship, he tells us to guard your steps. And it immediately tells us that there are missteps that we could take. And that's where I think we should start in looking at this passage. The preacher tells us that worship is something we easily get wrong. Worship is something we easily get wrong. And he doesn't hold back here. He says it is very possible, if you're not careful, to offer, as he puts it here, the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they are doing evil. They do not know that they're doing evil. He's describing someone who approaches God with empty worship. They don't stop to listen 
That's his concern here. And they don't stop to listen because the fool already knows everything that he needs to know, so he thinks, and so offers to God thoughtless offerings and thoughtless words. It's the kind of perspective that sees worship as a thing just to get done, something to be observed, a list of tasks to complete. But I mean, let's be sympathetic to the worshiper described here in Ecclesiastes 5, because this book was written to ancient Israel. You know, it's maybe 3,000 years old, this book. The worshiper in Israel, well, he had an offering to bring. And he had, say, a temple offering, a temple tax to pay. He had a priest who he had to serve in the right way. And if you were to ever read through the guidance on how offerings and sacrifices were to be made, you can see that it's all very precise. The fool sees it all as a means simply of keeping God happy. And despite maybe sticking to the rules of worship precisely, they don't realize that actually before God they're doing evil. Elsewhere in the Bible, the fool is described like this. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And the root of the problem for the fool in Ecclesiastes 5 is very similar. Very similar. He or she does not know God. Or at least chooses to forget what God is like. You see, worship is an expression of the relationship that human beings have with God. I mean, this is what we were made for, made to worship God. And so, true good worship is an expression of a right relationship with God. It's an expression of love for God. But how easy it is, isn't it, to sing words on a screen without ever engaging our brain about what we're singing? How easy it is to hear God's Word being read, but for our minds to be a hundred miles away thinking about the argument we had at home before we came out to church? How easy it is to bow our head in prayer with others and simply use it as a time to switch off and just listen out for the amen? And we do all those things, and at the end of it, we have done this week's worship, right? We've kept God happy for another Sunday, right? Wrong. The preacher says these are the missteps of a fool. And the preacher wants to help us, and so he gives us two big principles that we need to bear in mind when we come to worship. The first is this. Approaching God needs your ears more than your mouth. Approaching God needs your ears more than your mouth. This is where the preacher starts. To draw near to listen, verse 1, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And what does he say to us that the sacrifice of fools is? That it is, it is floods of empty words. How does he describe them? They are rash with their mouth. A fool's voice comes with many words. This is how he describes it in these verses. Far better than bringing your words is to draw near to God to listen. The preacher says this is how we guard our steps when we come 
before God in worship. Think back to that Israelite I mentioned, who unthinkingly brought his offerings and whatever. How did he know to do that? Like, how did he know that he needed to bring an offering? Who to bring it to? Where to bring it to? What kind of offering to bring? How did he know that an approach to God in worship was even possible? Well, it's because God had told him. It's because God had spoken. God revealed through the law that he gave to Moses that worship was needed, worship was possible, and here's how it was to be done. But it's so easy to misread those things. That law that was given, it was not just a set of regulations about the mechanics of worship. No, God gave those laws to reveal who He is, to reveal what He's like, to go back to that question. The worshiper was to think through all of this. So, so, so think of it like this, for, for the worshiper in Israel, he has to think along these terms, for me to approach God in worship, I need to bring a spotless animal And I will need to place my hand on its head to symbolically transfer my sins onto that animal. And that animal will be killed. Its blood will be shed. Its blood will be sprinkled. Now, if the take-home message for the worshiper from that is, okay, right, well, to keep God happy, I first need to do this, 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 and this then he's completely missed the point. This whole system for worship was delivering a message to God's people about human beings, about God Himself, about what it means to be right with Him. It's it's a message that says, if you're going to come and worship God, it is no light thing to do that. It's a serious thing. And the reason it's serious is because you're a sinner and you need your sins taken away. And the only way that your sins can ever be taken away is by the shedding of blood, by the death of a spotless, innocent victim in your place. And so, for the worshiper, they need to listen to what this says to them rather than just see it as a list of, well, I've ticked that off, ticked that off, done my worship now. Far better to draw near to listen for the worshiper to breeze into God's presence, offer a a merely superficial show, a thoughtless offering, thoughtless words. What a tragedy. And the Bible would say, what a fool. No, come near to God to listen. And this has always been God's pattern for how He deals with human beings. Even if you go all the way back to the account of creation, unless God speaks to Adam and Eve, they have, they have no way of knowing what their purpose in life is. God tells them. God tells them they are bearers of His image. They are to work to expand the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, to fill the world with more image bearers. How will they live in relationship with God? Well, unless He tells them, how can they know? And God does tell them. He gives them His Word. Before they can do what God requires, they need to first hear from God. How else would they know what God is like? And this is the pattern today, if anyone is to know God, 
if anyone is to worship Him rightly, we first of all need to hear God speak. We think of worship as something that we are proactive about. Um, we speak of us, I, I, we, we could sing of ourselves giving God our worship, and if the mood takes me, I will worship um, because I've decided that now is the time to worship and all of these kind of things. But friends, there is no genuine worship unless it is a response to something that God has done first. I mean, this is how we get right with God. You don't wake up one day and suddenly out of nowhere decide, you know what, I think I'll get right with God today. You know, there is something that God does first, something God needs to say to us, and He gives us His Word. And His Word, the Bible, reveals that He is holy, as we were thinking about earlier. And we see from there that we are not holy, and that in fact we are sinful and opposed to God. And we're rebelling against our Creator, and we deserve only His judgment because, well, He reveals to us that He is a God of right and true judgment. But God speaks to us some more, and He gives us good news. He gives us a message about a rescue from our sin, of how the Son of God came as a man, lived a life of holiness, offered His perfect life as a sacrifice for sins in the place of sinners. And the acceptance by God of that sacrifice is seen in His raising Him from the dead. And because Jesus has done that, God's Word comes to us again and gives us the free offer of forgiveness in Christ if we will turn from sin and believe in Him and follow Him. Now, unless all of that has been communicated to us first. How could we ever come to God? How could we ever come to Him if, unless He first speaks to us and tells us that He's there, what He's like, what we're like, and what we will need to do if we are to come to Him? Left to ourselves, we would never know these things. But this is how God has ordained life, and particularly spiritual life. The Apostle Paul would say, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And I would want to say that true worshipers of God have first responded to this Word of the Gospel, this message about Jesus Christ come to rescue us. The Bible gives us no latitude to dream for a second that we can keep God sweet by coming to a church building like this, singing a few songs, saying amen to a few prayers, if the whole while we are rejecting His Son. That is not worship. And so, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he gives us a general disposition for worship, a general attitude towards it. Draw near to listen. Be not rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? Well, verse 2, because you understand who's who in this relationship. 
You understand God is in heaven. You are on earth. God is the glorious one who is reigning in heaven, ruler over all things. We are on earth, ruled by Him. We do not, therefore, rush hastily into His presence with our words. We understand that because of what we are, there is always this inclination within us to turn away from God, to turn in on ourselves instead. I said earlier we were made for worship, and the sinful nature that every human being has wants to turn that worship back away from God and back onto ourselves. And so even for Christians, as we come before God to worship Him, what we need more than anything is to be turned out from ourselves back towards Him. That's what we need more than anything. And there is a tragic genre of Christian music that doesn't do that for us, that is often inward-gazing. What is the point in singing self-centered songs where we spend the whole time telling God or really telling ourselves what we are and what we're going to do? No, we need to hear from God. And God has spoken and still speaks to us through His Word, which He's given to us in the Scriptures. And this is why it's my conviction that uh, Sunday by Sunday when we gather here, we need to hear from God's Word. What's God telling us about Himself? Um, it's no coincidence that if you'll see me up here at the start of a Sunday service, the first thing we'll do after saying hello is read a passage of Scripture, because we need to hear from Him first. And then we respond to what He says to us in worship. And so this is why, to go back to that example I gave at the very start, the singing that we do, it is something different from the preaching. Of course it is. But they are all part of the worship. All part of the worship. Because if we don't have the Word, if we think we can worship without the Word, then we are not listening to the preacher's warning here, to guard our steps. Sing heartily, sing joyfully, sing a lot, but make sure that we have drawn near to God to listen. Many of you as children were told that you had two ears and one mouth, weren't you? And you were told that because they wanted you to listen more and to speak less. And I think that's what the preacher is saying to us here as well. He's saying, you've got two ears and one mouth. Be sure you're using your ears well before you engage your mouth in God's presence. But he does say that our words are important. And that's our second great principle here. When it comes to our words, when it's your turn to speak to God. The preacher says, your words before God matter. Your words before God matter. Approaching God needs your, needs your ears more than your mouth, and your words before God matter. 
And there's an encouragement here. You know, despite some of the severity of his warnings in these verses, there's encouragement here. I mean, do you see what the preacher is teaching us about about God? He is the God who speaks, and he's the God who listens. He is the God whom you can have a relationship with because he speaks and he listens. You know, for these ancient Israelites, their pagan neighbors had a multiplicity of gods. None of them could speak. None of them could listen. They were deaf and dumb idols. And here is the wonderful thing about knowing God. He speaks to us and he listens to us. This is a precious, precious truth to remember about who God is. But he says, don't forget who it is you come into the presence of. And particularly here, he starts by saying that it's no small thing to make your commitments to God. The preacher pictures an Israelite who, I don't know, perhaps in the gathering of worship, he is in that moment convicted about something, and he offers a rash vow. He vows to give something. Uh, So verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. So you see that's the the context there. Or maybe this this worshiper has felt the pressure of being around other people and uh, wants to appear to be something and makes this bold declaration of what he's going to give to God. But then he goes back home, or he sleeps on it, and in the cold light of day, he comes to his senses and realizes he doesn't want to give that away. And so he reneges on his promise before God. And you see how far he goes. Look at verse 6. This messenger is mentioned, which is probably a temple official. And so he's he has publicly stated his vow, and he goes to the temple official, and he says, no, 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 it was, it was a mistake. Um, I, I, I misspoke. You, you, you must have misheard me. Well, what I, what I meant when I said I would give that is, is, is really actually sometime in the future, if I was blessed, you know, you can imagine the, the gymnastics that are done to wriggle out of it. The bottom line is, verse 4, God does not take any pleasure in that kind of thing. These shows of devotion in the moment that are not then followed through. And in fact, we're told these are the actions of a fool. Better not to make the vow than to fail to follow through on your word. And I think probably we look on at that scene and we think, yeah, what a fool. How could he do that? You won't be surprised to hear me say, I'm here to disabuse you of that notion. This sort of thing is going on in churches every week of the year. Every week of the year. The same person who sings at the end of a church service, all of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender into your hands, spends the next five days in work thinking not a jot about God while they service their hopes and plans and ambitions that are very much firmly still grasped here. The same person who sings, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Or riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise go out from church. And often within a matter of hours, renege on the vows that they just made. When we are baptized, we are making a declaration about our union with Christ, our desire to follow Him with our whole life. When we become members of a local church, 
we commit, we make a vow to the other members of the church to love them and to serve them, to contribute to the ministry of the gospel in that local church. And sad to say, not infrequently, those sorts of vows end up slipping firmly into the past, even forgotten. I don't say that to get at anyone, genuinely. I don't say that to get at anyone, but really to draw out the force of what the preacher is saying here. When we enter into God's presence and we open our mouth, then we must not do that lightly. We must not let our words run away from us and express something with our lips that is different from what is really in our hearts. We must not disengage our brains or our hearts when we worship the living God. For when we do that, we are in danger of offering the sacrifice of fools. This relates, this applies to how we relate to God day to day. Uh, worship is not restricted to when you're with everyone else on a Sunday morning. We live lives of worship to God. And so what is it that we're going to need if we're going to draw near to God to worship? Well, we draw near to listen. And this is why uh, forever the advice that's been given to those who know the Lord is, is, well, start the day with His Word. Read something of Scripture. And in response to what God is saying to you through His Word, worship Him in prayer draw near to listen and to speak. But it does also apply to when we are together. The preacher told us that two are better than one. And when it comes to worship, that's true as well. We are here to encourage one another, to minister to one another, and yes, even to hold one another accountable if it comes to that to look out for one another in this way, to speak God's Word to each other that we might respond together in worship. It's interesting that that word, listen, that he uses way back in verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. It is actually a word that means more than just hearing something with your ears. It is an attitude of heart that comes to listen to what God says so that we might be obedient to it. And so when you, hear, uh, I've, I've, uh, uh, when you hear parents say to their children, you're not listening very well, well, they're listening fine in a sense, aren't they? They know exactly what you've told them to do. But when you say they're not listening very well, you mean, well, you've not actually taken it in and processed it and been obedient to what you've heard. This is the kind of listening that we're being called to hear, to draw near to listen with a heart that is ready to obey. You may have seen those two references to dreams, verse 3 and verse 7. Um, and what the preacher has in mind here is that when our minds, so particularly verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. So he sees a parallel here between this relationship with dreams and busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Um, what's in the preacher's mind is that, that when our minds are overloaded with many works and, and many cares, it's then that dreams multiply. The idea being that your brain is working overtime with all of these things you're juggling. Even when you're sleeping, there's this multiplication of dreams because you're just so overwhelmed with the number of things going around in your head. In the same way, says the preacher, a fool's voice speaks.
spews forth an abundance of overspeaking. It's as if his loyalties are divided on a million different things, and so his words just spew forth. They never cease to multiply. That's vanity, he says in verse 7. Instead, he says, God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God's people were given this directive. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The message there is to say that God is one. One united, unified being. And the one who worships him must do so as one unified, united human being. In other words, all your parts together worshiping him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. I suppose probably if you stop there, nobody's going to sing the last hymn, right? Nobody's going to sing a closing hymn after that. Because we say, well, how, how can anyone? How can anyone rightly worship God? I know what goes on in my heart and my head. I want to say to you today, we can worship. And we can worship confidently. Not because we get it right all the time. We don't but because we are united to the one who is the true and faithful worshiper, the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived the life that was fully consecrated to God. He knew what it was to draw near to listen to God and to respond faithfully in worship and to never do that with empty words never to offer a commitment that he reneged on. And in fact, that submission of worship to God led Jesus all the way to the cross. And so for all of us, of course we've not always got this right. We've preferred our own tastes to God's truth. We've made commitments with our lips that we never made with our hearts. But our worship is centered on Jesus the true worshiper, and we come through Him. And that's the reason why your worship is accepted before God, not because you always get it right, but because of who you belong to. He lived the life of true, perfect worship in your place. And so for all of our weaknesses, for all of our stumbling over words, for all of our inconsistencies, we come in the name of Jesus Christ to the living God, and we have liberty and freedom to worship. It's not the case that, that one slipped word here and there, one stray thought, and the whole thing is written off for you. What a freedom we have to know that we come to the Lord in all of our weaknesses, knowing that He is the true worshiper, and our worship is offered in and through Him. 
And we're going to come and we're going to do something that is uniquely Christian in order to worship God and particularly to remember the living Lord Jesus as we share in bread and wine together. Let me urge you to not see this as a thing to be done, but to see this as a message of comfort and grace to you as you look at the bread and the wine on the table to see them as something that declares God's grace to you and your invitation in to worship the living God. That's what it means to come to the Lord's table, to draw near to listen, because it's got something to say to us about who you are in Christ. And then we respond in worship. And so to help us do that, we're going to sing And we're going to sing a hymn that focuses our eyes on Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, the Son of God who came with boldness this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us close our time together by singing, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, for he alone is worthy. Um, Let's make this our our commitment today to adore and to bring glory to God. And with this, we'll close our service.